this overbuilt had significant excess capacity. We designed um, and, and built for the future. This is episode 273 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Louisville, Kentucky is taking advantage of an opportunity to drastically reduce the cost of fiber deployment as the state's Kentucky Wired project routes through the area. In this interview, you'll hear Grace Simrall and Chris Seit explain how the city will expand their fiber footprint. They'll describe their plans to use the new resource for municipal facilities, public safety, and smart city applications to improve life for residents and visitors. Now here's Christopher with Grace and Chris talking about what's happening in Louisville. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up here in Minneapolis. And today I'm speaking with Grace Simrall, the Chief of Civic Innovation and Technology for Local Metropolitan Government in Louisville. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. And we're also joined by Chris Seit, the Civic Technology Manager for the city. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I think a good place to start would be to just, you know, for people who, who haven't been there, it's a, it's a wonderful place. Um, Grace, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what people should know about Louisville. Some basic facts. We are the largest city in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Our population is about 760,000. We are a combined city-county government. Uh, we merged over 12 years ago. And um, uh, in terms of geographic spread, we have uh, roughly under 400 square miles of urban, suburban, and rural, all in um, our combined county. Um, but we are also known for bourbon. That is um, something that we've prided ourselves recently in touting. The, in fact, the Urban Bourbon Trail starts in Louisville, Kentucky. Great. Yeah, it's, it's hard to find an urban area that doesn't have a, a recent bourbon bar addition, so it's a, it's a great time to, to note that. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what a civic technology manager does in Louisville? Sure. So uh, the role to Louisville is fairly new. It was uh, created a little over a year ago, and the focus is to work on technologies that are more public-facing. So uh, working for a IT department in the city government, traditionally we focused on uh, serving the needs of our internal customers uh, in terms of law enforcement, public works. And so this role was created to take technology to the front line to the citizens as we're seeing smart cities evolve. Uh, we're seeing more uh, technologies being presented to the public, and so my role is to help uh, facilitate those additions in our city uh, and also to help with um, broadband expansion as my background uh, was primarily in uh, infrastructure and networks uh, when I was um, working on the inside of the IT department. So now we're trying to take that to a more public-facing kind of approach um, to IT. So now citizens will start seeing seeing things in the right-of-way that maybe they haven't seen before in terms of digital kiosks and public Wi-Fi hotspots, things that are fairly new to our community. And let me just ask you to, to follow up on that briefly. Um, what sort of applications are you thinking are going to make a big difference in coming years? So in terms of applications, um, we think there's a lot of potential with NextGen 911 uh, in terms of the functionality with how citizens interact with 911. So today you pick up the phone and you dial and you get routed just like you did 25 years ago over your phone. Um, sometimes we know where you are uh, because you're at a physical building. A lot of times we're 
reliant on triangulation for uh, you know the cell tower location. Uh, if you're a visitor in our community, you may not know what street you're on. So NextGen will allow us to drill down to a level to get your GPS coordinates from your phone to be able to text message with you. A lot of folks uh, may be in a position where they can't communicate with us over a phone verbally. So presenting those options where um, residents will be able to um, digitally engage with us, uh, even in a crisis situation, we think has uh, a lot of value and potential. Uh, we also are seeing a lot more interest in uh, in the kiosk space uh, in terms of wayfinding and uh, providing visitors and residents with information about where to find things. So um, those are two areas where we're seeing a lot of um, um, activity right now. Right. I guess we'll, we'll soon be beyond the you are here map and it'll be obvious that you're there because it'll be customized for you. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, Grace, uh, one of the things that originally led me to, to work with you, to talk with you was um, an exciting fiber project that I expect will be the, the backbone of some of these applications and technologies. Can you tell us what the city's doing in that regard? We had a unique opportunity this past budget cycle to uh, realize kind of the first step or our foundation in our dream to becoming a smart city. So when I tell people that Louisville aims to be a smart city, there are steps that we can take um, to get there. And one of the most important foundational infrastructure pieces is, is in fact, fiber. Um, so back to the opportunity. Um, the Commonwealth of Kentucky has a a very large uh, middle mile fiber project to connect all 120 counties together. Um, and part of that is to lay 90 miles of fiber within Jefferson County, which is uh, where Louisville is located. Um, we were presented the opportunity to participate in what's called an overbuild with them. So when they pull strands of fiber for the state, they can also pull strands of fiber for the city, would be metro owned and at a significant cost savings. Now, when we looked at the map, just because of the routes to connect all 120 counties, um, there was a, a portion of our city that has been historically underserved and continues to be underserved, um, which is an area we call West Louisville. Now, that was missing because of the, just the geographies of the city. It's bound um, by the Ohio River. So it doesn't make sense for Piper to run that way. It would either be running into Indiana or just a different state uh, crossing that river. Added a proposal um, besides participating with the state to um, do a full build out in West Louisville to make sure that um, those residents also could benefit from from having this fiber uh, deliver services, middle mile services to metro facilities and services. And just to to emphasize that, uh, because I think when we start talking about cities building fiber, it bears repeating that uh, this is not a project to connect homeowners or even uh, businesses. I, I believe it's uh, it's specifically for municipal uh, uses. That's completely correct. Um, uh, so Metro has needs, and in fact, our needs continue to grow every day. I think a lot of cities can um, relate to that. So, for example. Our public safety um, technologies rely on having high fidelity, high availability, high quality um, network speeds and network connectivity, which is something fiber can provide. Um, and we're limited right now to the current fiber footprint. So by um, expanding our fiber footprint by five times, um, this will give us over 100 miles of fiber that's spread out throughout uh, the county. We'll be able to then strategically deploy those public safety assets. So the needs, the needs are very great. Um, it's not just buildings, but it's even things like traffic lights, um, 
public safety cameras, sensors um, that really enables the smart city. And you mentioned that it's a really good deal. What's the approximate cost for this uh, 100 miles of fiber? So in working with our partners at the state, we estimated to do the full build at total cost to be over $15 million. And our full budget appropriation was 5.4 to do the same thing. As I, if I recall correctly, the, the cost of doing most of that fiber is actually dramatically lower. Uh, it's the, 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 the commitment to making sure the entire community benefits is what drove the, the cost up for building out into the western part of the city, right? That's correct. We always like to laud that because one of the reasons we support cities making these investments is to make sure that, that everyone benefits. So you're developing this plan, and I'm I'm curious if we step back to when all of a sudden you start hearing some opposition. Uh, what was happening there before this plan was adopted? As far as opposition goes, you know, initially it really was just paid uh, social media, you know, at the national level and um, at the regional level. There were a few groups that were associated with different national groups that um, are, are historically known to opposing anything that's publicly owned. So um, we, we kept an eye on it, but we really didn't think much of it um, in those, those early days when our budget proposal had been put and made public. So originally, it was just kind of this thing, and you thought, well, this is outsiders. We, we don't have to worry about it. How did it escalate? It became very clear when we started talking to our council members that, um, it, it, first of all, it was a very complicated project. So to be fair, even for those who are very technical and well-versed, it is a complicated project. So the complications with the project, the fact that it was tied to this um, state-level work that had had some delays, it, it muddied the waters in, in their minds. And so it became very clear that they were... Um, concerned. And so we had to spend a lot of time educating them and explaining how the, the partnership and relationship would work, the West Louisville fiber builds, which is by far the most costly in terms of cost per mile, why that was so critical and important. It was an education all the way up until the final vote. Well, it seems to me that, that probably the opposition had a sense too that if you miss this window, there's, there's no coming back because of the, it would be so much more expensive to do it later. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, because of the, the kind of urgency around um, the availability for the, the partnership, this is it. If they were able to block it, um, we really wouldn't have another opportunity at this for, for a long time. Chris, I'm curious how you know you observed this and whether you were surprised by any of it. As a uh, employee of government for um, over 14 years of my career, um, it was the first time that I had seen political opposition to an information technology department project. Um, you know, there's always been hesitancy around costs of investments, around you know replacing something like uh, your email servers or you know some other internal project that. Uh, kept the lights on for the city government, but oftentimes we didn't really run into any political opposition with this particular project. Um, it was uh, very obvious um, pretty quickly that we had a lot of people that were opposed to this, and, and our city had never really undertaken a fiber project of that scale. So it, it, was, it was fairly new to to us as a city government to go down that path. And so, you know, like we said, we have a little over 20 miles of fiber over the 20 years that we've had a fiber network, um, and that's been built out in pieces over time. So it was never really a big budget ask um, and never really drew a lot of attention. But as soon as we went public with the, the amount of fiber that we were planning to put in and the, the budget request um, was a little bit larger than what they typically see from the IT department in terms of capital projects. 
it, it definitely was uh, a first for me. One of the things that I find interesting about this is that when we find these groups that are opposed to the the public doing this, often they cast themselves as being protectors of the taxpayer. And yet, if I had to guess, this project is probably going to be saving taxpayer money to because these facilities need connectivity. Someone's going to provide it. And in our experience, the city doing it themselves is the most cost effective. So I'm just curious, do you have a sense of how this project impacts taxpayers? There's a couple different ways it impacts taxpayers. One, we are extending our connectivity to facilities that previously we have had the lease circuits from. So the recurring bill for those lease circuits um, will go away. In addition to that, we're adding some capabilities to city government that we have not had before in different parts of the community in terms of connecting our traffic signals and adding um, connectivity for public safety cameras. So today, if the police department deploys a public safety camera, unless it's along one of those routes that we own with fiber, which is very few right now, we have to pay a carrier to connect that camera up and provide the monthly service. And so there's a bill with that. And then the traffic signals outside of our um, interstate ring, where a lot of the suburbs are at, where we're seeing a lot of population growth and a lot of the traffic problems, those signals are largely just timed signals with no connectivity back to our, our traffic control center. And so when we get complaints from citizens about the lights not working correctly or uh, backups, we have to send somebody out to either do a study or retime the lights, uh, which requires more man hours from our traffic engineering group. Uh, so there's some costs that we haven't quite been able to quantify yet that will likely be impacted in a positive way for taxpayers uh, because we're deploying these technologies. Grace, did you want to add anything? I just want to stress that um, if cities are serious about making smart city investments and they haven't thought through the connectivity piece, they'll discover very quickly that that's where uh, most of the costs will come from because it's will be a recurring charge and it you know scales with the size of the, the smart city technologies that are being deployed. So we could certainly talk about costs that are avoided and begin to quantify that as well. There's a there's a soft cost around security too. So for everything that we put on a cable modem or DSL line, those are all internet facing devices at that point. So there's uh, a, an inherent risk with that device being out there. So we've seen in the past year a number of breaches where IoT devices um, were breached and used. Uh, and attacks on uh, various organizations uh, as part of a DDoS. So um, by keeping the network internal to city government, we're able to protect those IoT assets with our perimeter defenses and to keep those from being publicly exposed where anybody can go directly after them. Right, I'll just, I want to do a little bit of translation to make sure people got that because I think it's a really important point. Um, you know, when you're leasing con connections, what you're saying is the the devices themselves are kind of exposed. I'm sitting here in, in Minneapolis. I could try and hack into that device because I have access to it on the public internet. But after you've built your network, I would have to somehow breach your highly defended ring, your your, your inner connectivity, and then find the device inside the network. And, and so at that point, the device is no longer a potential entry point, and your network is, is much better defended, and your devices um, don't have to, you don't have to be as worried about them, because there's no way for you to upgrade many of them yourself. These are commercial devices. 
That's absolutely right. I want to come back to how you responded to this um, opposition campaign, but but first I just want to take a second to ask if if you have talked to some of the people that were concerned and if they're um, now that you've had more time to educate them and, and they've gotten away from the heat of that moment, um, have, has people, have people's concerns softened somewhat grace? I, I certainly think so. I mean, like I said, part of it was just a, a matter of having a very strong education campaign. Uh, this type of project, not only is it complicated from a technology standpoint, it's actually complicated in terms of benefits, right? If it was just, a single benefit, that would be a really clear message, but because it is an enabling technology, there were so many benefits that, for example, when we said, oh, this will also enable public safety, people said, wait a second, we hadn't heard you say that before. Um, and we said, well, actually we had, it's just that it does so many other things, you might have not heard it in that list of benefits. At this point, uh, the kind of sentiment that we get from both council and um, residents in our community is that they're they're very excited about this. They want to hear about progress, and um, and we certainly are looking forward to being able to share that progress when it's uh, further along. And and I would point out too that the vote to approve the budget for this project uh, when it was finally voted on was unanimous. Well, let's let's talk about how you got to that unanimity then. Um, first of all, what's the time frame that we're talking about from when you seriously became concerned to when the vote was? Are we talking about days or weeks or, or what kind of time? I would say it was months. It was probably like a month and a half, maybe almost two months. Okay. We, we made our budget proposal announcement um, in mid-April, and we really didn't kick into high gear with edu- our education process and, and outreach process until beginning of May. And so what kind of what kind of education process was this um, individual meetings with concerned people or I mean was it were you mostly concerned with members of your governing council or was it more about the public or both? It was both. Uh, we certainly took as many you know held as many meetings as we could with council members. I I lost count. I think we met with just about every single one of them before the vote was taken. Um some of them more than once. We also went to their caucus meetings to make sure that, that we were available to answer questions. We met with residents in the community. Um, we So the mayor has, for example, something called the Innovation Advisory Council. And so we met with them and educated them so that they could understand and then be advocates, if they so chose, in the community and invited them to the budget hearing process so that they, they could be part of this process. Chris, as someone who, you know, in some ways I might simplify what you were saying from your background to like coming from someone who's, I think, more on the, the geek side of just getting things done and, and suddenly being exposed to this becoming political. I'm curious if you have any reflections on that. So uh, I, I wish that I had more vision that we were going to run into the opposition as I feel like we would have better prepared our um, initial budget documents to reflect on some of the things that would be pointed at as flaws when they were really to the benefit of the, the overall community. So, you know, we were attacked uh, on a few different angles about the benefits. And as Grace said earlier, there there were so many of them that people narrowed in on a couple and tried to attack those points, but the points weren't really wrong. They may just not have been accomplished in a way that they were traditionally used to. So, you know, um, a, a carrier could come in here and very easily sell us gigabit services at our facilities. What they're not looking at is what does that cost over a 10 or 20 year period of time? You know, because we've had fiber in the ground for 20 plus years now as a city. 
So we know that we have that kind of a life expectancy. So when we're looking at the recurring costs to connect a building, you know, if you're looking at a 10 or 20 year time frame, the, the investment up front makes a whole lot of sense. But there was a lot of focus from the questions we were getting in terms of, well, why don't we just uh, X thousands of dollars per month for the service? And do you really need uh, a gigabit service? You know, that, that was a question that I think came up more than a couple of times was, do they really need it? And so, you know, as part of the innovation team, we are trying to look at how the city operates, not just now, but also how we're going to operate in the future. And so with all these smart city technologies coming down the road, you know, we had to not only educate folks about the fiber and the benefits, but also uh, about the smart city technologies that were coming along that were going to be layered on top of that. And I think that was where, if I had to go back, I would have done a, a better job of educating, not just on the fiber investment itself, but... Uh, on educating around the technologies that it would enable for tomorrow. And Grace, I'm I'm curious what what points sort of resonated the most um, as you were going through this process of educating. I guess I have a bias to assuming that it will often be about just the cost savings and the economics, but was some of it also more technological in nature and educating them as to the, the technology benefits? Yeah, certainly. So that, again, back to the whole uh, challenge around a project like this that has multiple benefits we wanted to be able to educate them about about the future of smart city and what that means in terms of technologies. We also wanted to educate them about equity. And so, you know, one of our core governing values is compassion. And when we say that, what we really mean is we want to enable a creative environment to allow people's full human potential to flourish. That sounds rather um, abstract, and yet it's something that we apply to all of our work every day. And so when we looked at Again, what kind of investments we're making in, in underserved communities, especially ones that have historically been repeatedly underserved and underinvested in. We want to paint the picture of the future possibilities for those neighborhoods so that children who are doing the homework have access and, um, and not just have access, but have high quality access. Those who are applying for college, um, applying for financial aid for college, again, have access and the means to do it. Um, those who are looking for jobs. Every All of these activities rely on network connectivity. And um, when you look at either access from, from actual access to connectivity, um, physically as, as well as the cost, um, it was something that we wanted to, to drive home. And we kept stressing this was middle mile. So we weren't necessarily delivering the final mile to residents. Um, but again, and yet another benefit of this project is that this overbuilt had significant excess capacity. We designed um, and, and built for the future, even in terms of strand count. So we would be able to strategically uh, lease out excess capacity to encourage small and mid-sized internet service providers to deploy final mile service to, to residents and businesses in the community. Frequently, we hear from them that, that the cost, you know, there's a barrier to entry in the market, and that's the middle mile. So a, a quick clarifying question. Um, so when you talk about the, the kids being able to do their homework better and things like that, is that because you're going to be serving community centers and libraries and things in those areas with, with higher quality service? Yes, in part. So certainly when we talk about metro facilities that we would be able to immediately connect, um, we were very cognizant in West Louisville to point out which of those were community facilities that would be able to benefit immediately. Now, that said, there is also, and that's part of why it's so complicated, this, this, ex, this extra piece where we could enable different Internet service providers to enter our market or deliver to areas of, 
of Louisville that they haven't been able to before by um, giving them the ability to, to lease that excess um, capacity on the middle mile. And that's what I wanted to, to follow up with. You, you said strategically, and I'm, I'm curious, I think a lot of, a lot of people in, in earlier days perhaps would build out a network like this and they would uh, build it so that the endpoints, the points to get into the network were always at the community facilities. Did you engineer it in a way that, that, that better enables um, potential other lessors or lessees, I forget which is which, <laughs> but whoever wants to lease it from you to be able to access it more conveniently? So we, um, we've been intentional with some of the routing that we've done with um, our fiber routes to make sure that we pass multiple points of presence and have um, facilities near those locations, if not in them, that will allow for lighting that fiber from a carrier. We have um, also been diligent about making sure that we have uh, ample amounts of splice points along the routes so that those smaller providers or any other provider for that matter can access the fiber and get from where they're at to where they need to get to on, on that backbone. Great. That's what I was, that's what I was hoping to hear. And that's what I, I felt like a lot of people need to understand when they're laying these networks out is that that's a key to making it useful. Um, well, are there any, any concluding thoughts? Uh, I'll start with you, Grace. Um, this is, this has been really helpful to get a better sense of what you've done, but have we left anything out? I think just um, one thing we learned in the process is that there are champions, uh, both in the community and on the council. So, um, you know, find those champions, find those those who not just are more techno, you know, technically inclined or informed, but um, who understand the vision and and make sure you work with them. And um, we we really benefited from finding those champions, um, both in the community and on council. Great. And, and Chris, any other concluding thoughts? I think we will spend more time this year um, with uh, members of the council and and our leadership to make sure that we're continuously educating around not just the fiber that we're doing right now, but also the, the technologies that we're going to be putting on top of them. I think uh, starting early on that is critical to our long-term success. Well, thank you both for coming on to share the lessons. I think these are really important lessons that people will get a lot out of, and hopefully they'll have fewer uh, close calls um, as a result of them. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. That was Christopher with Grace Simrall and Chris Seit from Louisville, Kentucky, describing the city's fiber project. We have transcripts for this and other community broadband bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcasts. You can access them on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you, Arna Hughesby, for your song, Warm Duck Shuffle, License to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 273 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>